Welcome to the You Lead Podcast, brought to you by the Council for School Leadership of the Alberta Teachers Association. In today's episode, we bring you a keynote from You Lead 2023 by Dr. Steve Munby. He talks about the imperfect leadership mindset. So I don't want to take up a bunch of time because you're not here to hear me speak, but I am excited today uh, to invite Dr. Steve Munby. Uh, And you know what they say, the third time is a charm. So this is the uh, third opportunity we have tried to get Dr. Steve Munby up here with us. Uh, In uh, 2020, we had him booked. He was going to keynote for us in 2020. And there was something that happened in the world. I can't remember what it was, but it didn't allow us to have a conference. Uh, so we postponed him till last year. And then last year, uh, Dr. Mummy was supposed to be with us. And uh, for some medical reasons, he wasn't able to join us. So we said, we're not going to give up. Uh, we absolutely want to make sure that we hear from him. So we're really excited about that. Dr. Mummy comes from us all the way from the United Kingdom. Uh, and we could not be more thrilled to invite him here. Uh, He's a self-employed consultant and speaker on leadership and system reform. He works with governments, with groups of schools around the world. Uh, Steve was the chief executive of the National College for School Leadership in England for eight years, and then the chief executive of the Education Development Trust. It's an international nonprofit education organization working in Asia, India, Africa, Middle East, and Europe. He's also the facilitator for ARC Summits. And he's a visiting professor at the University College London Centre for Educational Leadership. He's an honorary visiting professor at Liverpool Hope University and the chair of the Teaching Awards Trust. His book, Imperfect Leadership, is a book for leaders who know they don't know it all. It was published by Crown House in 2019. And his latest book, he co-authored with Mary Claire Brethren, uh, Imperfect Leadership in Action, a practical book for, le- for school leaders who know they don't know it all, was published just uh, in April 2022. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Steve Munby. What a wonderful place for a conference. My first time in Banff and its magnificent scenery. It's actually 15 years since I last spoke in Alberta. And in Edmonton, I think it was the pre-runner to the ULEAD conference. It was a bit smaller uh, 15 years ago than it is now. And big congratulations to Jason and Mark and the team for putting on this fabulously large conference. I get, I get the chance to work with lots of education systems from around the world. And I've got to say, I think you should feel really proud of what's happening in your public schools across Canada, in Alberta, but also across Canada. Uh, I... For me, you, you sort of, I know there are some problems and mistakes. I know some, I was talking to Jethro yesterday, he was t- telling me about the Indigenous experience. I know there's been some big challenges. But overall, I think you're largely getting it right. And when I visit the schools in Canada, which I love to do, I do feel positive about what I'm seeing. So well done and congratulations for what you're doing. Uh, it's good to hear that Iceland are here today, colleagues from Iceland. About seven years ago, um, with my friend and colleague, Andy Hargreaves, we set up something called the ARC Collaborative, which is education systems from around the world committed to social justice, democracy, peace, inclusion, equity, and excellence. Uh, Iceland is a founding member of that uh, uh, collaboration. We had our first ever summit in Reykjavik, uh, and it's good that they're still involved with us, as is Saskatchewan and Nova Scotia too. So it's great to see you. Now, I'm not an academic or a researcher, but I have spent my life in education. 
And for 17 years, I had big leadership roles. My first one was I was in charge of a local education authority in England, responsible for 80 schools. Then I was chief exec of the National College for School Leadership, responsible for the leadership development for 24,000 schools in England. And then I was CEO of Education Development Trust, working across the world on doing great things in education. So I'm, I'm going to talk about leadership today. And about four years ago, I wrote a book. And I called the book Imperfect Leadership, a book for leaders who know they don't know it all. Now, why did I write the book? Well, I wrote the book because for 12 consecutive years, I made a speech at a big conference like this in England, about a thousand or more school leaders. And each speech was about school leadership. And because everyone turned up, the same kind of people turned up every year, had to be 12 different speeches about school leadership, not the same one regurgitated. Uh, And people said I should put that in a book. I thought I wasn't going to put it in a book unless I could wrap around it what I was learning about leadership. Uh, So I wrote this book, and it's definitely not a hero leadership book. It's about things I struggled with, mistakes that I made, uh, how gradually over time I became a better leader. And I called it imperfect leadership. And if that's not something I'm ashamed of, I'm embarrassed about, I'm actually proud to be an imperfect leader because I have a problem with this idea of perfect leadership. I think if we think we have to be perfect as leaders, we'll end up making ourselves ill. We'll end up making ourselves physically or mentally ill. If we think we have to be perfect as leaders, we won't share and distribute the leadership. We'll do it all ourselves because we're so good. And if we think we have to be perfect as leaders, we won't encourage others to step up to leadership because they have to be perfect as well. So I called the book Imperfect Leadership. And then two years later, last year, I wrote another book with a wonderful colleague called Mary Claire Bretherton. We called it Imperfect Leadership in Action. And it was targeted specifically at school leaders. And in this book, we talk about the imperfect leadership mindset. And this is what I'm going to talk with you about this morning. At the heart of the imperfect leadership mindset is self-awareness, understanding yourself as the leader. I'm going to cover that today. But because we know we're not perfect, we ask for help. We manage our ego. We don't let our ego become uncontrolled. We carry on learning because we know we're never going to be perfect, but we want to get better. We're authentic and genuine in what we do. Because we know we can't do it on our own, we develop and empower our teams. We make public promises because we're worried we won't do the things that are really important unless we make those public promises. We lead with power and with love in our leadership. We develop future leaders. And especially in times of crisis, we show up with hope and pragmatism. So that's the, that's the kind of focus of the book. And I'm going to deal with quite a few of those today. So let's start off then with being self-aware and tuning into context. Now, when I was chief executive at the National College of School Leadership in England, we had something called the National Professional Qualification for Headship. Uh, it was a, a, a kind of high-quality program to develop head teachers in England. And uh, the qualification was issued by the National College, and it was my name on the certificate. And the government decided, after running it for a few years, after we ran it for a few years, the government decided that we're going to make it compulsory, going to make it a legal requirement that anyone who wanted to become a head teacher in England had to have this qualification. Now, the problem was... A lot of people had the qualification already and weren't interested in becoming heads. And others had the qualification and weren't ready for being head teachers. 
even though they had the qualification. They were being interviewed and clearly not ready for headship, but they had the qualification. So we had to find a way of making it more challenging so that those who got the qualification were ready for headship. And one of the things that we did to change it was we made it a requirement for anyone who wanted to come on the program to do 360 feedback in advance. And when they got the feedback about what their colleagues thought about them, if they recognized the feedback, were keen to work on any areas for improvement, they got on the program. If they didn't recognize the feedback or were defensive about any areas for improvement, they didn't get on the program. Because our view was self-awareness is fundamental to being a good school leader. And that proved to be a very helpful distinguishing factor for us in those early days when we're trying to shift that program. Now, I know that we're, I'm talking to people here who know a lot about school leadership development. I, I was talking uh, to um, uh, Judy from, from Calgary yesterday, and I know that there are others here, like Nadine from the OCP, who know a lot about leadership development. So I will be coming back to some of these issues as the, as the session goes through. So we, we used to use this diagram the iceberg diagram, when we're talking about self-awareness. Above the surface are knowledge, experience, and skills. We can work out, we know a lot about pedagogy, we need to do a bit more about curriculum. Or we know a lot about um, behavior management, but not so much about financial management. So we can work on the, improving our skills in the things that we're not so good at. That's above the line, that's clear cut. But what about things below the line? Such as, what, um, what do I think others want from me as a leader? Am I happy with the expectations that people are placing upon me as a leader? That's a more interesting and challenging question to ask. What about this? How do my traits work for or against me as a leader? What am I like when I'm tired or stressed? Can I recognize my behaviors when I'm tired and stressed? Can I recognize it early so that I can amend it and mitigate against the worst aspects of my behaviors when I'm tired or stressed? Do I understand myself that well as a leader? And what motivates me about my leadership? Is it about is it about making a difference? Is it about ambition? Is it about status and power? Is it about income? Is it about not being a failure? Is it about being popular? For me, my two drivers as a leader were these, making a difference and not being a failure. They were my two drivers. I was always worried about getting sacked from my job. Um, but you have your own drivers as a leader. And gradually over time, you learn to be more self-aware as a leader. But this is a lifelong process. And sometimes you get better at other things, you get worse at other things. You could be a great listener when you start off as a leader, you might become a worse listener later on. So you have to be consciously aware. And that's why getting feedback from others is really important because we never see ourselves as others see us. We have to get that feedback in order to improve our self-awareness as a leader. Now, many years ago, I had the opportunity to go on a really impressive leadership program in Paris, in Fontainebleau near Paris. It wasn't for education, it was for CEOs of big companies. And in order to go, you had to do two things. You had to do 360 feedback from all your colleagues, which I'd done before uh, and I was used to. But you also had to do 360 feedback from your friends and family. And you go on the program, then you get the feedback about what your colleagues think of you which in my case was, was really good. I was very happy with, there was a few issues for improvement, but that was, I was really pleased with the feedback. Then they get your feedback from your parents and, and from your family and friends. Not so good. Not so good. And what was, what was clear to me from this feedback was, 
I was trying to be my best self at work. I was turning up trying to be kind and, 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 and understanding and empathetic and doing all the things I should be doing as a leader and then coming home and not being my best self with some of my family and, and friends. And I had to ask myself some hard questions about my leadership. Because what would it mean if, if I'm being good at work but not so good at home? And it actually that changed my approach to work-life balance. And from that year, and that was a long time ago now, I improved my work-life balance so I could be more of a better person at home as well as a better person at work. And I don't think it did me any harm to reduce my, the pressure on the, on the work side so I got a better balance in work and home. But getting feedback is so important. And, and gradually over time, we develop our own leadership style based on our beliefs and values, our expertise and skills, and our personality. But context matters, so our leadership style has to change as our context changes. Now. Most people understand this. If you're going to get, if you get a new headship, new principalship somewhere else, people understand you've got to think your way into that new context. You can't just go and be exactly the same thing you did in your previous school. You've got to understand your new context. If you go in and just do exactly what you did and, and, and talk about what you did in your last school, it won't go down well. They want you to think yourself into their context. Now, most people understand that. Well, what is, the case, what is the case is this. You can be in exactly the same job, in exactly the same school or district, but your context has changed. Your context has changed. And a different approach to leadership may be required. This, is a, this um, graph is well known from Charles Haney from many years ago, the Sigmoid Curve. It says most organizations, when they start, they grow, reach maturity, and then start to decline. And if, as a leader, you can spot that you're near the top of that curve and change things, you get an inflection point in more growth and improvement. If you don't, and try and change things when you're coming down the other side, you still can change things, but it's harder to do so. Now, I'm putting that graph up because at least twice in my leadership, I got this wrong. At least twice, things have been going well, I was having some success, and I failed to spot that the external context had changed so much that it required a different approach from me as a leader. It's easy to spot it afterwards. It's hard to spot at the time. But my challenge to you is this. We've all been through the horrendous, the challenging aspects of COVID. But we haven't gone back to a new normal. We haven't gone back to what it used to be like. So what kind of leadership is required of you now? in 2023, wherever you are. What is the external context? What are the drivers that, may, that mean that you have to operate in this kind of way to do the best for your children, your community, your parents, and your staff? That's the key question to ask. Not what I used to be like a year ago, two years ago, three years ago. What kind of leader do I need to be now? And it's not just the external context that changes. The people can change too. You, can, you might have had a senior team with a great deputy, a deputy who didn't need a lot of help, who knew what they were doing, who, who you could just leave to get on with things. You've got a new deputy who needs a lot of help. So you're adjusting your leadership to ask yourself a question, what does this individual member of my leadership team need from me now in order for them to be a great leader? And that might change as the people change within your organization. So asking yourself, what, what's the context? What's changed and what kind of leader I need to be now is really important. And the people who think they're perfect don't think they have to change at all. But the people who are imperfect understand 
They have to nuance their leadership in light of the context that they're in and the people they're leading. So that's about self-awareness. I'm going to talk about asking for help now. Now, it turns out that asking for help is probably my best leadership skill. That's what, what I seem to excel at being able to ask for help. And actually, it's a great leadership strategy. And I'm going to tell you five reasons why asking for help is such a great leadership strategy. Here's number one. It helps to develop collective responsibility. Now, if you were as a head teacher or a superintendent, if you, if you work hard on a, on a new strategy and you're really burning the midnight oil, you've really worked that you think it's complete and detailed and exactly what's needed, then you bring it to your team and you say, I think we should do this. That might be a great leadership strategy and it might be a great strategy you've introduced and it might work really well. What it won't do is build collective responsibility. If instead you work at something and bring it to your team and say, this is not finished. This is the direction I want it to go in, but how can we make this better? What have I missed? And can, you, can we work together to make this the really best strategy for our school or for our, our group of schools? That will build collective responsibility. Um, when I was, you know, this idea of vision. When you're a chief executive or a head teacher or a principal, you're supposed to have a vision for your school or for your organization. But also, you're not supposed to turn up on day one and say, well, I just don't know what to do. You're supposed to have a vision for, for your organization. On the other hand, that vision has to connect with the context that you're in and the people you're leading. So I, when I went to be the chief exec at the National College for School Leadership, I got all the staff in a big room and I told them this story. I said, my wife and I had been told that the view in the Greek island of Santorini was one of the most beautiful views in the whole world. White buildings, blue sea, the extinct volcano rising up out of the sea, blue sky. So we decided to go and see it for ourselves. So we flew to Santorini, got out of the plane into, into the minibus. The minibus took us to the cliff edge to see this wonderful view. And the mist had come down and we couldn't see a thing. Now we knew it was going to be a beautiful view. We knew the sea would be blue, the buildings would be white, the caldera would be rising up, the sky would be blue, but we had to wait for the mist to clear. So I said to the staff at the National College, I have a vision for the National College. It's got this aspect and this aspect and this aspect and this aspect, but it's a misty vision. And I want your help to make it into a clear vision. And I think the idea of a misty vision is a good one here. He said, I've got a vision. I'm the leader. I'm supposed to have, I've got a vision, but I want, to, it's misty at the moment. I want help to make it the clear, right vision for the organization. So asking for help builds a sense of collective responsibility and ownership of what happens. The second reason why asking for help is such a good thing is it helps us to make better decisions. Now I'm going to show you some photographs now. This is where I used to work when I was a director of education in a local education authority. It was near Merseyside, just outside Liverpool in England. Um, and I had an office in that concrete building there. Uh, and the view I had from my office was McDonald's in a car park. Now, I spent five years there. It was a very challenging place. It was a very exciting place to work, very deprived. And I only had responsibility for 80 schools. I'll tell you a story later on about what happened when I was there, but 80 schools. 
And that was the environment. I went straight from there, become chief executive of the National College of School Leadership. Straight from being this little place in Merseyside related to being the National College of Leadership CEO. And the building in Nottingham was posh. It was luxurious. It had a moat and a lake. It had swans and the occasional heron. It had 100 ensuite bedrooms, a posh restaurant and a bar. And when I got the job, I was told that one of my roles was to advise the education minister about school leadership. Well, I'd never even met an education minister before. Never mind advise them on school leadership. So you can see I'm completely out of my depth. When you find yourself out of your depth, the best thing to do is ask for help. Ask for help. I got myself four mentors. The first mentor was the former education minister who helped me understand how government worked, how, how bureaucrats made decisions, how ministers operated. I, it was invaluable to me to have that mentoring from her. The second mentor I got was a guy called Tim Brighouse, who was the commissioner for London Challenge. And it was a great strategist because I had to move from being responsible for 80 schools to, being, to helping to support 24,000 schools. I needed someone who understood big picture thinking. And he was a great mentor for me. The third mentor was someone you might have come across. It's a guy called Tony McKay. Because I needed, I needed in this job to have people who were very important in the country supporting us rather than causing us harm. There's a lot of key players out there who could do us harm or do us good. I needed to meet these people and, and talk with them and invite them to help us. And I needed someone like Tony who knew everyone to, to, to introduce me to these people. So he was great at that. And my final mentor was the author of a government report about the National College for School Leadership, which had been published six months earlier. It was quite a critical report and was the reason the last CEO had gone. I figured if the author of that report knew what the problems were, he could come and help me sort them. So that was my fourth mentor. Now, I could not have done the job without their help. I really couldn't. But I have to ask the question, why do leaders whether it's school principals or superintendents, or why do they think they can lead without help? Why would you not want mentors? I, I just don't understand the mentality of things. I, I've always had three or four mentors. You just get more help. I don't, I, I don't ask for a lot for them. I maybe meet them three times a year each. Uh, but I'd always have them. And what's also interesting, I choose them myself. Because I want them, I want them to have expertise that I haven't got, and I choose them because they have that expertise. And finally, the longer I'm in the role, the more I need mentoring, not the opposite way around. Most people think I'll be, I get a mentor for my first year or two, and then I'm on my own. I find the opposite. I find I need mentoring more the longer I'm in the role because I get too close to the job. I don't see my organization well enough. I need an external person to keep that challenge and that help from external going on. So have mentors, choose them yourself. Don't limit it to one if you can help it. And also keep having them, even if you're a long time in the job. I change my mentors over time as my needs change, but I always have them. Asking for help just makes you make better decisions. And the third reason is asking for help from our senior team builds trust amongst the team, and encourages others to ask for help. I don't know whether you've um, come across the wonderful writings of Patrick Lencioni. He talks about the, the, um, 
at the five dysfunctions of a team. He says at the heart of um, a good team is trust. If you haven't got trust, then that will lead to a lack of openness. If you haven't got that, you'll, you'll get fear of conflict and artificial harmony. You'll then get lack of commitment, ambiguity and vagueness, avoidance of accountability, low standards. And in the end, it'll all be about you rather than about, uh, about the organization and results will not be focused on. And he says, if you want to have a trusting team, if you observe teams that trust each other well, you see these kind of behaviors. They admit weaknesses and mistakes. They ask for help. They accept questions and input about their areas of responsibility. They take risks in offering feedback. They tap into one of their skills and experience, and they offer and accept apology without hesitation. Those, he says, are the skills or the behaviors of a trusting team. This is my question. If we all want trusting teams, and we do, how can we possibly expect our team to exhibit those behaviors unless we model it ourselves as those who lead those teams. Unless we admit weaknesses and mistakes, unless we ask for help, unless we welcome challenge, we won't get that from our teams unless we model it ourselves. Now, um, many years ago, uh, the when I worked in a local authority, the government introduced a new strategy where every local authority had to submit a school improvement plan to the government. This had to be very detailed. It had to identify exactly what was going to happen, what the outcomes were going to be, how it was going to be resourced, et cetera, et cetera. And the government graded them, graded them. And this was high stakes because if you got a, a grade A, you got the money and you could go off and do it, do what you needed to do to implement it. If you got the bottom grade, not only did you not get the money, you got intervention. So it was quite high stakes. Uh, so when I was in charge of school improvement at a local authority, I wrote our plan with help and submitted it. And to my delight, we got an A. Years later, I found myself as director of education in a, in a different local authority. And we had to do a plan. It was high stakes. So I delegated to the director for school improvement, as, you, as, I, as I had been in my last job. And I said, in case you need any help, here's the one I did three years ago in a different place. And I gave it to her. I said, that was really well received by the government. And she went away and basically it was a disaster. It was a disaster. She hardly did anything. And, and the reason was she felt it had to be perfect. I'd given her what was a grade A plan and she felt that's too hard. I can't do it. So she just froze. And she was frightened to ask for help because I hadn't at that stage modeled the importance of asking for help. I'd come across as the expert, not someone who needs help myself. And in the end, it was a, a disaster. So this is a quote from Brenny Brown. We have the thousand leaders. What do your team members do that earn trust? The most common answer, asking for help. When it comes to people who do not habitually ask for help, the leaders we polled explained they would not delegate important work to them because the leaders didn't trust that would raise their hand and ask for help. So you'll only delegate work to your team members if you're confident that if they're stuck, we'll ask for help, which is a mistake I made uh, in that school improvement plan all those years ago. 
and they will not know it's okay to ask for help unless we model it ourselves. That's the key point. Now, I want to think about your leadership team. And, and uh, maybe there's, maybe there's uh, six people, five people in your leadership team there and you. And maybe you've got uh, colleagues C and D who you trust completely. You're almost reading each other's minds. You're completely on the same wavelength. You can cut corners. It, it's this huge trust there. You might have colleague um, B and E. There's no problem. There's not quite as much trust, but it's not an issue. And you might have colleague A. Well, there is an issue. There's a lack of trust. There's some tensions there. And my question is, what are we going to do to bring A and indeed B and E into the middle of the circle of trust? Now, I've had some absolute catastrophes on this. I've had, I've had people like colleague A who have just not managed it and they've ended up leaving the organization. But I have had, had some success too. And when I've had some success in bringing A into the organization, into the kind of circle of trust, it's because I've focused on my, those behaviors myself. It's because I've tried to understand where they're coming from. I've modeled my I've welcome challenge from their perspective. And I've tried to model those kind of behaviors and they feel felt more comfortable to begin to be okay themselves. So asking for, asking for help builds trust amongst your team and encourages them to ask for help too when they need it. The fourth reason for asking for help is such a good idea is we may fall over and struggle to get back up again unless we're good at asking for help. Now, I've, um, I've worked with lots of school principals from all over the world over the past few years. And I know it's been a really tough time. To be honest, I think it's just as tough now as it was during COVID. It's a really, really tough time. I've seen a number of school principals with mental health problems, with stress, going, you know, falling over. I understand that. I understand that. But one of the key skills of a leader is recognizing that you're struggling and asking for help. Um, I love, I love this quote. Good leaders embrace the old Japanese proverb, fall down seven times, get up eight. But imperfect leaders may need some support to get back up again. So reaching out for help when you're struggling from a colleague, help from even from a family member or a friend, but knowing that you need the help and asking for it is a sign of good leadership, not a sign of bad leadership. It's a sign of good leadership. I remember many years ago when I was under a lot of stress as a leader, the, the chief executive of the council sent me home for two days to sleep. It was exactly the right thing to do, but I'd never have recognized that I needed it, but he knew. So being able to ask for help is a key leadership skill. And the fifth and final reason why asking for help is such a good idea. If you want to develop powerful networks between schools, being invitational is highly effective. Now, I want you to imagine that your school is a fishbowl. And in the fish, in the, in the bowl, there's lots of familiar fish. Swimming and fishing you should do. And um, it's, it's, all very, it's a bit limiting, but it's all very familiar. And you're asked to enter into a powerful collaborative network with other schools. You're asked, as it were, to jump in the lake. The trouble with the lake is there's some very strange looking fish in there. They look a bit different. They're swimming a bit different. They have different kinds of ways of leaping. Why would you choose to jump in the lake? I'll tell you why you won't choose to jump in the lake. I'll tell you why you won't choose to have this deep collaboration. 
You won't choose to jump in the lake if you think the fish will ignore you. And there'll be a little clique of fish and you'll be an outsider. You won't want to jump in the lake then. You won't want to jump in the lake if they think if if they know all the answers and you don't. And they're gonna they're gonna share their knowledge but not listen to what you have to say. You'll jump in the lake if it's compelling and exciting, and if you're generally invited because they want your help. They want your engagement and involvement because you know they know you bring something important to the lake. And that's the key point: invitational leadership. If if you're not getting if you're not getting deep collaboration across your network, and some schools aren't showing up to things, you don't ring them up and say, "Why haven't you shown up?" You ring up and say, "I hear you're doing great work on math. Will you come and share it at our at a future meeting, please?" Or your early years work is 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 great. We'd love you to share a bit more about that so we can learn from you. That's invitational leadership, and that will build a powerful collective, deep collective network. So asking for help is a great strategy. But we feel we shouldn't do it because we'll show our weaknesses. It actually proves to be a great leadership strategy. Now, I want to go on to ego now. Managing ego. Okay. So by ego, we mean your sense of self-worth as a leader. Your sense of self-worth as a leader. Your confidence as a leader. When we become the head teacher, the principal, the CEO, the superintendent, most of us who who take on those roles, we do it with some gravitas. We know it's a really important, we know we're accountable. We we put on the cloak of leadership. We say, right, we're now the person in charge. The book stops with us. We're going to give it our best shot. We might be worried about getting found out, but we're going to give it our best shot. But some people occasionally take on this kind of role and they really, really don't believe in themselves as a the leader. They have no confidence. And it's a nightmare to be led by someone who has no confidence. Because they're constantly seeking your approval. You're constantly trying to prop them up. And they never see things through because they haven't got the confidence to see things through. So that's a nightmare. The trouble is that some people who become leaders and get some success go the other way. They put on the mantle of leadership and put a crown on as well. They start thinking of themselves too highly. They think they know it all. They start to drink their own bathwater. They're the ones. They're the ones who do all the talking in meetings. You know, you you come across these kind of people. They think too highly of themselves. Uh, and 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 so we think it's really really important that we have this balance between not too high and not too low. It, it, in 2016, I think it was in England. There was, a, there was an article in the, in the weekly education newspaper, and this was the headline. The headline was, Charting the Downfall of the Famous Five Superheads. Now, we, these head teachers in England, these five, were famous. The education minister mentioned them in speeches as heroes. One of them had a damehood. They were going in and out of number 10 Downing Street to advise the prime minister on education issues. Everyone knew who they were. I've been to four of their schools. I knew, I knew four of them reasonably well. All five lost their jobs. Four were banned from teaching and one went to prison. Because they were good head teachers. They were good head teachers. What can happen when you have a lot of success? 
is you can start thinking the rules don't apply to you. You're so good, you can break the rules because you know you're so successful. And that's the worry. That's what can happen when your ego starts getting out of control and you start uh, thinking you can, you can break the rules. That's why I like this quote. Success requires a moderate fear of failure. It's the balance of such fear with a desire to excel that leads to great leadership. Those who lack this fear of failure break rules, take risks, and sense no boundaries. They are a law unto themselves. Now, this is the key point, folks. If you have some fear of failure, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. If you have some imposter syndrome, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. The people we should be worried about are those who don't have imposter syndrome, who think that they can break the rules or think that they, they do know. They're the ones we should be worried about as leaders. Uh, I used to keep a diary. Well, I still do, actually. And I really recommend as leaders that you keep some kind of diary. I only used to write in it maybe once a month, just what I was thinking and feeling about my leadership, etc. And I remember once, I was, it was the summer holidays, I was on a Greek island. And I wrote in my diary, this, this job I'm doing is so hard, I don't think I'm up to it. And I look back and exactly the last summer before on a Greek island, I've written exactly the same thing. So every year, just before I went back to, to work in the autumn, I was doubting myself. When I got back to work, it was all fine. But that self-doubt was a good thing in my leadership, not a bad thing. It helped to make me really focused on the things that really mattered rather than thinking that I knew it all. So in the book, we have this chart, which you won't be able to read at the back, but I'm going to read it out to you. And we call it the Goldilocks chart of uh, ego. So down the left-hand side is unhealthy small ego. You've got, a, you've got low self-esteem. You're really happy with yourself. You don't have confidence. You hate being in the limelight. You try to avoid it because it makes you feel exposed and vulnerable. You shrink into the shadows where possible. You push your team around you to fill the gaps. When people disagree with you, you find it difficult to recover. You feel deflated or broken by the challenge. And you end up changing your mind too often. Or you create a culture where people don't disagree with you because they know you'll react emotionally. That's a bad place to be. The unhealthy big ego you betray yourself overly self-assured, overly confident. You need the limelight. You need to be center stage and visible. You dominate with your presence. Don't allow others around you the space to contribute or share the limelight with you. If others are seen to be successful, it irritates you. When people disagree with you, you find ways to disregard their viewpoint, minimize or make it invalid, or you create a culture where people don't disagree with you because they know you'll react with, with anger or be dismissive. That's a bad place to be. This is the Goldilocks place. This is the just right porridge in the middle. You're fundamentally happy with yourself. You have a good level of self-esteem. You're confident in your leadership. You enjoy the limelight, but you don't need it. And you're satisfied with being unseen in the background when it's appropriate. You're able to empower others to lead and you know, and you know when to step back. And you take delight when your team is successful and is praised. You're okay when others disagree with you or challenge you. You're open to changing your mind. You create a culture where colleagues know that, well, that you will listen to their perspective and weigh that up alongside other factors. Now, I've wrestled with this all my career as a leader. All my career. There have been times in my leadership when I've just not known what to do. I've lacked confidence. And in those times, sometimes months on end, I know I've not been leading my organization well. 
there have been other times when I've had, we've had a lot of success, I've got a bit too confident. I've got a bit complacent. I've stopped welcoming challenges much. And in those times, I've not been leading my organization well. And I'm at my best when I've got a balance between confidence and humility. Neither overwhelmed, nor overbearing. That's a hard line to get right. The Goldilocks porridge just right line. But that's where we should try to be as leaders. What I often hear from people when they look at this is um, sometimes they're on the left, sometimes they're on the right. Sometimes they're not confident, sometimes they're too, and it varies on the issue or, or the year or the day. Um, what I also hear is they, they may not be themselves unhealthy big ego, but they certainly worked for someone who had an unhealthy big ego in the past. Okay, I want to move on to talking about making public promises. Sometimes in leadership, you know you should do something that's important and you're not sure whether you're going to be able to do it or they're up to do it, so you make a public promise that you're going to do it. I'm going to give you a few examples. When I went to be chief exec at the National College for School Leadership, I felt that the National College was a bit too cliquey. There were a lot of head teachers and school leaders who worked with the National College, a lot of others who didn't. And I wanted the National College to be for all school leaders, whatever type of school they led, wherever they were in the country, whatever kind of leader they were. So I decided to make a public promise. I was making a speech at a big event like this, and the, the media were present. They were covering the conference. And I knew that they'd publish this, what I said. And I made this promise. I said, in my first three months in the job, I'm going to telephone 500 school principals and ask them for their advice about what I should do with the new chief executive of the National College. Now, I knew that was going to be a hard thing to do, I did not realize how hard it was. Because when I was a director of education in Knowsley, when I made a call to the school principal, they took the call. But as this guy that no one had ever heard of was the chief executive of the National College of School Leadership, I couldn't get past the secretary's office. They thought I was trying to sell something. Uh, and they thought it wasn't me. It couldn't have been the CEO. It must be some other person. And even when I did get past the secretary's office, the head teacher was always in a meeting or teaching or out of the school. It was a nightmare. And I had to have 10 of these conversations every working day for the first three months in order to achieve my promise. Had I not made that promise public, I would have given up after about the first 50 conversations. But I didn't. I kept to that. I made the family phone calls. And it was the most important thing I did in my first year as a CEO. It sends such a powerful message to every power of, of England that I was listening and they were going to be part of the future of the National College. The second example, um, a few years ago, I decided to do the Great North Run in Newcastle. It's a half marathon. It's a big, big half marathon. And although I'd been a runner before, I, I hadn't, my knee had gone, I'd lost, I'd lost my fitness. So I I knew that if I was going to do the Great North Run, this half marathon, I'd have to get up at half past five in the morning and go training. And I found that really hard. So I thought, I know, I know what I'll do. I'll get my moral purpose. So I decided to run in aid of Macmillan Cancer Fund. That gave me my moral purpose to do the training. And I still found it hard. What made me get up at half past five in the morning to get fit enough to do the Great North Run is I told all my friends and colleagues, I am going to do the Great North Run. Having made that public promise, it would then have been unthinkable 
that I didn't do the training and do the Great North Run. So this is the point. We make these public promises occasionally when we know that something's really important that we should do and we don't want anything to get in the way and we know our own weakness, so we make it public. Every year I used to do a speech, as I said, at, at, at a big conference. Uh, and in this speech, I used to talk about leadership and the importance of things like integrity and authenticity and moral purpose and fairness. And I knew that my, the colleagues that I led in the National College, my staff, were all listening to that speech. And I knew it would be the grossest form of um, hypocrisy if I was making a speech about integrity, authenticity, and moral purpose, and didn't demonstrate that in my leadership back in the organization, which is why I did it. I knew that by saying it, by talking about the importance of it, I would be more likely to be the kind of leader that I needed to be. And this, so this is, this is a really important point about, don't make public promises about other people. Don't make public promises about your school, but sometimes make public promises about you and what you're going to do because you know it's important that you need to do it. Now, what's even more powerful sometimes is when you start making public promises together. When you get a group of schools making public promises to each other, that's really powerful. What happens there is you start to get, you build a sense of public accountability as a group. You're binding each other in to your public promises and you're building trust between your group of schools. I've had the privilege of working with groups of schools all over the world. I'm a big, huge fan of deep collaboration. I don't think any system will do well unless people collaborate together and learn from each other. It's such a big key point of a good education system. I had the privilege of working with a, a group of schools in Lincolnshire, and this was their public promises. I'm going to read it out to you. And they reviewed this every year, and they made these promises public. They went to parents. It went to the government. Everyone knew what they were promising. It said, we're going to be ambitious for children. We're going to set the bar high, even if it makes us feel uncomfortable, because by working together, anything is possible. We're a learning community, constantly understanding our needs, identifying best practice and research to generate a professional learning community. We are not afraid of asking for help, nor are we reserved in offering support and expertise wherever we can. We're builders of social capital. We start with the premise, what can we give rather than what can we get? We are a rich community of mutual support and professional generosity. We hold ourselves to account with clear aims and targets that link to children's outcomes. We will open ourselves to the scrutiny of others, knowing that accountability and review is key to the continued success of any learning community. We'll celebrate diversity, respecting the diversity of schools and the members across our alliance. We see this as a strength, whilst ensuring that no one is excluded or left behind. And we lead with moral purpose. We're committed to the success of children and adults in all of our schools. We have an opportunity to achieve something truly transformational that translates into a better education system for all. We celebrate the successes of our partners as we would our own. Every year they meet together and they ask themselves, so how are we doing against our public promises? I think that's a really powerful thing to do. Um, so public promises individually and public promises collectively can be really, really good thing to do. Okay, I'm going to move on and talk about power and love now. See, I think imperfect leaders make use of their strengths, but they know their weaknesses. 
And they understand that people will not automatically change simply because the leader expects it. Because everyone else is imperfect as well. They therefore show both power and love in their leadership. I make no excuses for using this term, by the way. I know that power has some negative connotations, and I know love's an unusual word to use in education, but I'm absolutely clear about both of these. So I wanted to explain what I mean by that. By power, I mean the drive to achieve one's purpose, to get the job done, to push things, to drive things to a conclusion. By love, I mean the drive to connect things, to bring people together and to unify. And it's based on a quote, a famous quote from Martin Luther King Jr. who said, power without love is reckless and abusive. A love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power without love is reckless and abusive. A love without power is sentimental and anemic. Let me say a bit more about what I mean by power and love. I mean power by, by being driven, pacey, relentless, indomitable, challenging, having high expectations, holding people to account, being assertive, confident, and determined. By love, I mean being kind, inclusive, collaborative, building relationships, being invitational, asking for help, empowering others, showing compassion, being humble and demonstrating empathy. And my point is this. We need both. We can't afford just to have one or the other. It has to be both. If we don't have power in our leadership, not much will change. Not much will change. We have to have things that will have drive and determination, high expectation, in order to do things even better for the children and young people that we serve. I love this quote. Once a commitment is made, the goal will seem larger, bolder, and more exciting. Leaders need to fix in it like a laser beam. They see it intently, even obsessively. They feel it, they hear it, they taste it, they smell it. It becomes part of them, their very identity, something they're committed to make happen, come what may, whatever it takes. There should be something in your leadership that you're absolutely passionate about. And you're absolutely determined you're going to make happen in your school or in your organization. It'll normally be about children's learning, but, but something that really drives you. Now, my wife and I bought a house many years ago. It was a big old house. And we drew up a list of all the things that were completely unacceptable in the house that had to change. And we spent the first year enthusiastically working through those lists. We got about two-thirds down the list, and then we stopped. Now, there were two reasons why we stopped. The first reason was we ran out of money. But the second reason was we stopped recognizing and noticing the things that initially we said were unacceptable. We just got used to them. That crack on the windowsill stayed there for 15 years. We didn't even notice it anymore. We lowered our expectations. We became complacent. We accepted the status quo. This can happen in leadership. We go in, we have our expectations. We want to really make sure that everyone gets the very best education. And then gradually we just, we just lower our expectations and we accept the status quo. And we lose that drive, that power, those high expectations. That's a bad place to be as a leader. Unless you have that, nothing's going to improve much in your school. But you also have to have love in your leadership because you understand that few people live simple, uncomplicated lives, few adults and few children. And as Plato said, be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle because you have to take people with you. Otherwise, 
it's not going to last for very long. And I, I love this quote. It's a well-known quote. You've seen it many times before. Um, it's an African proverb. It says, if you want to walk fast, walk alone. If you want to walk far, walk together. But I think it's often misused, that quote. Because actually, as leaders, we want, we want to walk fast and far. We don't want to say, well, we'll wait five years to improve our school. We want children only get one education. We want to walk fast. We want to make change in order to improve things for our children and their lives. That's why sometimes leadership is very lonely because you're making some tough decisions. You're having some difficult conversations because it's important that the children get the best. But we also want it to be long-term and sustainable, not just quick superficial stuff. And that's why we have to walk together and build that sense of collective responsibility and collaboration. There was a study in England a few years ago, published by the government, actually, that looked at teachers and their well-being. And it said in this study about, about, it said the workload was huge. Really, really, they're all working really long hours. And about half of them wanted to leave the profession and the other half didn't. But, but they thought initially it must be because of the workload. So when they looked at it, the ones who wanted to leave were working no harder than the ones who were stay, wanted to stay. There was no difference in the work hours they were putting in. The difference, as they found out, was the leadership they were experiencing in their school. The ones who wanted to stay felt valued, felt they were contributing to something bigger. They felt understood by the leaders. They felt the leaders knew what they were trying to do, and it was part of, part of some big collective uh, development. And the ones who wanted to leave had none of that. They just felt put, put upon. So leadership and the love side of leadership is so important. Now, you have a lot of um, uh, political leaders who show power, not love. But someone who I think shows both was Jacinda Ardern. And she said, one of the criticisms that I've faced over the years is that I'm not aggressive enough or assertive enough. Or maybe somehow because I'm empathetic, I'm weak. I totally rebel against that. I refuse to believe you cannot be both compassionate and strong. Compassionate and strong is what I'm saying. So let me sum up what I'm saying about power and love. The power side of leadership, you set high expectations for your students and of your staff. You demonstrate drive and relentless focus. You refuse to be sidetracked from the, from the, from the most important things. You challenge complacency and you walk into the wind. I'll talk about that in a second. And the love side of it, you co-construct the strategy. You build ownership. You demonstrate kindness and empathy. You stay close to the climate and emotions of the organization because you don't want people to fall over. You're watching carefully. You're seeing how tired they're looking, if they're looking stressed or unhappy. And you build long-term sustainable cultures. Now, we, colleagues, we never get this right. We never get this right. But I found over the years, using it as a, as a tool, to review my leadership, maybe once every six months. Have I got the balance right in the last six months? Have I been too strong on the love side, not on the power, or vice versa? I found it a really helpful tool. Power and love in our leadership. Okay, so I've got about 20 minutes left. I've got time to do two more, I think. Let's do being authentic and doing the right thing. Okay. In 2017, there was an incident that hit the international headlines. Three members of staff from United Airlines had boarded a United Airlines plane and physically removed a paying customer because they wanted the seat for a member of the crew. 
Now, this, this guy, Dr. Dow, had done nothing wrong. He, he was 67 years old. He got concussion, a broken nose, and lost two front teeth. They beat him up. They physically removed him because they wanted the, the seat for a member of the crew. Now, when I saw that, I was horrified. Horrified. And then I saw what their mission statement was. Fly the friendly skies. It's hard to think of a bigger gap between rhetoric and reality. Fly the friendly skies, beat up a passenger. But then I thought, what about my own organization? How confident am I that I haven't got a rhetoric reality gap in my own organization? We have all the values up, but how, to what extent are we practicing and living the values? And I asked myself some hard questions about this. If we want to plug the rhetoric reality gap, there are two things to do. If we want a values-based organization that lives the values, there are two things to do. And the first one is obvious, and everyone knows it. It's about modeling. When we are the CEO or the principal or the person in charge of an organization, everyone is looking at us. We know that. They're watching not just what we say, what we don't say. If we praise one team and don't praise another, they've seen that. They've noticed that. They've got that. If we say hello to someone, but don't say hello to another, oh, they've noticed that. They're watching our body language. If we turn up late for meetings, gradually other people will start turning up late for meetings. If we speak in a frustrated, angry way about parents or children, other people will start speaking in that kind of way, disrespectful. Because gradually... We cast a shadow of our organizations for good or bad. And, we, uh, and if we model bad practice, that's what will happen. We model good practice gradually, that's what's going to happen. That's the nature of leadership. I go to a lot of events where there's a big uh, organization. It could be a local authority with a director and all the staff for the day. Once a year summit, once a year conference. Or it could be a big group of schools with a CEO. And I've worked out there's two kinds of CEOs or directors at these kind of events, these annual events for all the staff. The first kind of CEO turns up early, makes conversation with people, at the beginning of the day welcomes everyone, stays, engages at lunchtime and refreshment time. At the end of the day, thanks everyone for coming. The other kind of CEO or director turns up, makes a speech probably, disappears either completely or only to talk to one or two really important people. Their staff never get a chance to see them or talk to them. Now, I'm not saying that that second kind of CEO hasn't got really important things to do. They will have. They'll have an in-tray and lots of urgent stuff. But the message it sends out to their staff, who they never see except in this event, is you don't matter. And I'm not a learner. You can have the CPD. You can have the professional development, but I don't need it. So I'm talking about how we model and the messages pick, pick, people pick up from how we behave. Now, I think that's a pretty obvious one, and it's hard to get right, and I know that I haven't always got it right myself. But the second strategy to, to plug a rhetoric reality gap, I didn't understand until much later, it is about incentivizing good behaviors through systems and processes. When I was a director of education, I had a pupil welfare manager Seemed a nice guy. Anyway, one day the director of finance came to see me and said, we've got some concerns about his budget. 
So I said, look into it. It's probably nothing. So they looked into it. And this man, this senior man in the local authority, pupil welfare manager, had been stealing from the council, paying his mortgage from council funds for three years. Now, of course, he went to prison, and rightly so. But I had to ask myself some really key questions here. The systems weren't strong enough to prevent that. The systems did not sufficiently incentivize the right behavior. And also, he knew that my focus was on the children and school improvement, not on the finance side. I had to change how I behaved in the future to make sure the systems were robust. And I talked about the importance of financial probity. There's a famous example of Sears Roebuck. They decided to give their engineers, the car mechanics, more money per hour if they, if they repaired uh, cars more quickly. They ended up repairing cars that weren't even broken. The, the incentives led to the wrong behaviors. Uh, I was working with a primary head teacher in England uh, last year. She had some support staff, non-teaching staff, who were taking the last two or three days off of every, every term. When we looked at it, it made sense to do that for them because the incentives were all about doing that rather than not doing that. So this is my point. If groups of people in your school or organization, not individuals, but if groups are behaving badly, it's your systems, not them. It's your systems. Because people are smart. They'll do what makes sense to them. If the systems are incentivizing them to behave badly, it's the systems that the issue, not them. So look at how your systems work to incentivize the right behavior rather than the wrong behavior. At the National College, every member of staff every year, whether they were a van driver or whatever their job was, did 360 feedback every year. It was impossible for any member of staff in the National College to flourish unless their colleagues thought they were living the values. We built it in. At my last organization, we had a reward system. Uh, award system. It was all about the values. We, people won awards every month and every year linked to the values and the behaviors we expected in the organization. So think about your performance management systems, your accountability systems. Think about your induction systems. Think about your systems in your school or organization. Now they incentivize or disincentivize the right or the wrong kind of behavior. Okay, so in the end, it's important that we need, we need to lead authentically. There's a famous book by Goffey and Jones called Why Should Anyone Be Led By You? It's a good question. Why should anyone be led by you? Goffey and Jones come up with two reasons. The first reason is you are genuine. You're honest. You're authentic. You're not playing games. You're not out for, for yourself. You apologize when you get things wrong. Authenticity. The second reason they say is the staff think you might know what you're doing some of the time. So it's both, it's both authenticity and credibility, but both. Not just the, the not just the second one. In the book, we talk about the importance of healthy authenticity. Because I worry about this idea of it uh, just going for authentic authenticity in the raw. So uh, the wall to all authenticity. I was grumpy today, but I was authentically grumpy. I lost my temper, but I was being honest. So we talk about healthy authenticity. 
trying to be yourself, but the best version of yourself. You're still yourself, but the better version of yourself. And trying to be a better person the next day than you were the previous day. That, that's, that's what we mean by healthy authenticity. And one of the great writers on leadership, on school leadership, I'm sure you, you've all come across, is Vivian Robinson. And she's, she's got a new book out called Virtuous Leadership, Virtuous Education Leadership. And she says, if we have to be going effective as school leaders, we need to do four things. Use our knowledge and expertise. Solve complex problems, not superficial problems, the underlying problems. Build relational trust and demonstrate virtues. And she uses this term virtues because she thinks it's much better than values because values are theoretical. Values are things you say you believe in. Virtues are when you practice them, when you behave and model those values. That's why she talks about the importance of virtues. And we need to choose the right thing to do rather than the wrong things to do. There's a famous speech by uh, Lieutenant General David Morrison, Chief of the Australian Armed Forces. You can look up the video. It's a fabulous speech when some members of the army had been behaving badly. And he used this quote. He said, the standards we walk past are the standards we accept. I think that is so important. It's not just what we do, it's what we ignore that matters. If we walk past something we know isn't good and we don't challenge it, it'll carry on. We are giving it our acceptance. The standards we walk past are the standards we... So think about the right things to do, the ethical things to do. Uh, and if you're worried about whether you've stepped over the line and done the wrong thing, these are four tests. The sleeping test, if I do this, can I sleep at night? The newspaper test, would I still do this if it was published in a newspaper? The mirror test, if I do this, can I feel comfortable looking at myself in the mirror? And the teenager test, would I mind my children knowing about this? Good questions to ask yourself about our own behaviours. Now, in our last book, we have a case study from a head teacher of a high school in London. She writes about a single day in, her, in, her, in, in the school. It's a day which starts off with bad weather and goes on to issue after issue and crisis after crisis. And she writes about this day as a case study. And there are two conclusions that are clear from this case study. One is systems matter, especially when they're tested by crises. If you haven't got the right systems in place, things can go badly wrong. But even if you've got a crisis, if you've got the right system in place, it helps you to make sure that you do the right thing. So systems matter. That's the first lesson from this case study. And the second lesson from this case study is modeling the values matters too. And this is how she concludes. She says, authentic leadership calls for wisdom, experience, a commitment to justice, Courage in the face of justifiable or ridiculous anger and constant good humor. School leaders are not just public servants, but role models for children. Children deserve to see every day what it takes to live a good life, no matter what the weather. I've got time for one more, showing up with hope and pragmatism. We've all been through some crises, especially with COVID, and completely. unexpected. No one's got the casebook of what you should do in these circumstances. We've had to just deal with the crises. And I've been thinking a lot about how we handle crises in leadership. And the first thing I think is really important 
is that we show up. Uh, and you may think that's pretty obvious, but there's lots of examples of leaders who didn't show up in a crisis. I'm just going to mention two of them. George Bush, Hurricane Katrina, 2005, devastated New Orleans. Thousands of people killed, 125 billion pounds worth of damage. He flew from his home in Texas over the site and went to Washington and didn't visit. Some people say his presidency never recovered. He didn't show up at a crisis. Here's another one. The Queen of England, the Aberfan disaster in 1966. A slag heap killed 109 children and five teachers when it fell on a school. The Queen didn't show up. She thought she'd get in the way. She sent someone else. It was eight days before she showed up. And she said much later that not showing up at Aberfan straight away was her biggest regret of her reign. Now, I've never had to deal with the kind of things you've had to deal with. I've never, I've never been a leader in times of a COVID crisis. But I will give you one example of when I did have to deal with a crisis. I got a phone call from a secondary, a high school head teacher in Nosley when I was director. I'm ringing you because I'm frightened for my life. I said, what's happened? He said, well, today I exuded the child for very, very, very bad behavior. And I brought the parent in to explain why I was exuding them. And I was, the father said to me, you can't exclude my child. And I said, uh, I was telling him, this is why I'm, I am exuding him because he's broken the rules and this is the process. And the father said to me, no, you misunderstood me. I won't let you exclude my child because if you do, I'll do you harm. Ask the police about me. So this head teacher, after they'd gone, rang up the police. And the police said, ah, yes, he's a gangster and a killer. We can't protect you. So he said, that's why I'm ringing you. So I, I had a decision to make. I said, I'll be there in 15 minutes. Fortunately, I wasn't far away. I, I, I dropped everything, got in my car, go straight to the school. I went straight into his office and said, from now on, we're dealing with this together. You're not on your own. And we sorted it. We got police protection for his family and for the school. We dealt with the exclusion outside the school and the issue went away. Many years later, I was at a music concert somewhere in Manchester and I bumped into this head teacher. He came up to me and said, I will never forget that when I was so frightened, you showed up. So sometimes when it's a crisis, we don't have the answers, but we know we have to show up. In those moments of crisis, we can't delegate that. It's about being there and so that the people can see that you're with them. That's key to leadership. We might know the answers, but we're there. But it's not just about showing up. It's also about walking into the wind. I like this phrase. Too often have I come across school leaders, too often, who've just not walked into the wind enough. They've had to do hard things. They've been worried that they might upset people if they do, so they haven't done them. And the ones who really seem to get it and, and really make a difference in their schools are the ones who choose to walk into the wind even though they don't want to walk into the wind. They'd rather stay under the duvet that morning. But they get up, they go into work, and they have that difficult conversation because the children are the most important thing. And they choose to walk 
into the wind. Leadership can be extraordinarily hard, but it's up to us to walk into the wind. And at a time of crisis, we lead with hope and practice. Many years ago, I visited a secondary school in the south of England. The building was pretty grotty, but everyone the head teacher introduced me to, child or member of staff, she said, well, wonderful. Oh, so meet so-and-so, so, so, so good. So-and-so, this child, so wonderful. This, everyone was wonderful. Uh, uh, she was so optimistic and positive. So when she left the room, I talked to her leadership team. I said, what's she like to work for? And they said, she's our storyteller. When things are tough, they often are, she tells us the story of how things are going to get better. And I love that notion of the leader as the storyteller. But I think it's important that we think about pragmatic optimism, not just optimism. One of my mentors, for many years, was a guy called Michael Barber. And he went to do some work in Pakistan over three years to help to improve student attendance and student outcomes in schools in Pakistan. It was an awful situation. Student, not just student attendance, though. Teacher attendance was low. There was corruption everywhere. It was a major, major problem. There have loads of policies in the past. But over three years, working with the minister and the officials, about one and a half million more children attended school. Now, how did he do that? One and a half million more children attended school as a result of what he did with the ministers and officials. Three things. He had an absolute belief that things could be radically improved. An indomitable will that it was going to get better. A strong belief we are going to do this. He never lost that. He confronted the brutal fact about the situation. Instead of ignoring the corruption, he confronted the corruption. He found ways around things. He sent people on scooters to get their attendance data to the center where everyone could know how things were going. And he never relented. Everything was absolutely focused on doing the right thing, doing the right thing, doing the right thing, doing the right thing over a three-year period. He didn't give up after six months. And he had this huge success. And some of you will know, you'll well know, the, the, stock, the, the story of Stockdale in Jim Collins' book, Good to Great. Jim, um, Stockdale was imprisoned was during the Vietnam War and tortured. And he was there for seven years and he, he, he escaped. He, he lasted the seven years. Nearly everyone else died in prison. And he was interviewed by Jim Collins and asked how he survived. And he said, the reason I survived when others didn't is the optimist never survived. The optimist kept thinking they'd be out by Christmas or out by Easter. When it didn't happen, they gave up. The pessimist gave up straight away anyway. And this is what he said. He said, you must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can't afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. We're going to get there, but we're going to be honest about the brutal facts that we're dealing with. It's so important. You know, we know that the pandemic's had an effect. We know that there are big issues. And I worry about head teachers who could gloss over them and, and talk so positively without confronting the brutal facts of the issues. And I worry about those who do the opposite and don't have the positivity. When I was 15, um, I did, I was fifth bottom with the bottom set in French. I was the fifth worst child in the school of French. 
Uh, and my dad, before he died, gave me my old school report. And I wanted to find out what my French teacher had written about me when I was the fifth worst child in the school a year before the external examination. And I looked up what he'd written about me. He'd only written one word, my French teacher. He'd written cheerful. When you're fifth bottom of the bottom set, cheerful's good, but it's not enough. You have to confront the brutal facts and you're not going to get your exam. It's both, cheerfulness is good, but confronting the brutal facts and doing something about it is also really good. Uh, I had a great privilege of hearing the Canadian singer-songwriter Leonard Cohen at a concert a few years ago. This is what he said. He said, I've spent much of my life studying the great philosophies, but cheerfulness kept breaking through. I think we need to show cheerfulness as well as confronting the brutal facts. People need to look into our eyes and see positivity. Even though it's tough, that's our job. That's our job. I love this quote from another one of my wonderful colleagues, Michael Fulham, who says, talks about learned hopefulness rather than learned helplessness. Learned helplessness is where it's all too much and we can't do anything. Learned hopefulness is we'll get some quick wins and we'll gradually build a sense of positivity and hope in our school or in our culture. And I, I did a lot of work in Africa in my last job, fabulously interesting work in Africa. And I came across the name of this school in Nairobi. Soon Big Brain Academy, a school of excellence. Great name for a school. Optimistic leadership. So I want to bring this together. Uh, I haven't got time to go through all this in detail, but you can get the slides. In times of resilience and challenge, we can adopt a victim mindset on the left-hand side there, which is you're fundamentally unhappy with what's happening and you blame everyone else for it. It's not your fault, it's everyone else's fault. That's the victim mentality. You feel powerless, trapped, you blame external factors. If only the government would give us more money, if only the region would help us more, if only we had a fairer system. It's everyone else's fault. And the staff you lead, you either blame them, or if you don't blame them, they blame everyone else too. They're all victims. And um, you end up, you don't ask for help because you, what's the point? You feel you already exhausted all possibilities. You've done everything you can so nobody else could do any better. And you end up being depressed, despondent, and undervalued. Um, so that's the victim mindset. The hero mindset is another trap we can fall into. You're fundamentally unhappy with what's happening around you and you blame yourself for it. It's all your fault and you have to sort it. Everything is your fault. Attendance dips, it's your fault. If children are hungry, it's your fault. If the budget is tight, you haven't done enough to bring in more money for the school. Whatever's going wrong, it's your fault. And, and instead of empowering others, you protect them. You feel sorry for them. You reduce the pressure on the staff and take it all upon yourself. And then don't ask for help because you feel that might damage your credibility with staff. You just work even longer hours trying to solve the problem and you end up feeling stressed and guilty and perhaps heading for a kind of breakdown. Victim mindset, hero mindset. In the middle is imperfect mindset, which says, I'm unhappy about some of the things, but within our school, we can do positive things to make a difference. We understand our context. We are aware of what we can control and what we can't. We put aside the things we can't control our influence and focus on the things we can. Small wins are celebrated. 
We confront the brutal facts, but we also tell the story of how things will get better. We value our teams. We share and delegate responsibility. We recognize the contribution they make, but we watch out for their mental health and stress levels. We push them, but not so hard that they fall over. We show power and love in our leadership. We're good at asking for help internally and externally. It helps us to feel more positive about the work and gives us access to a support group. If we're struggling, others will help us and vice versa. We've got a sense of collective responsibility and trust within the school, and we can learn from good practice elsewhere we can bring back to make better decisions. We may feel tired and challenged, but we feel surrounded by colleagues who support us. We're authentic as a leader. We have some bad days, but remain positive about the difference our school is making. It's the imperfect leadership mindset I'm talking about here. Let me just try and wrap this up in the last five minutes. Uh, that's a quote from Bob Dylan. It's not dark yet, but it's getting there. I'm just telling you one story of um, a dark night of the soul moment for me. When I went to be director of education in Notley, we had the second worst examination results in the whole country. After a year of my leadership, we had the worst examination results in the whole country. I went live on Radio Merseyside the morning of the results and the broadcaster said to me, with respect, just give up, it's hopeless. The national newspaper, the Daily Mail, rang me and said, want to do a story on the worst local authority in the country where you do an interview? And the Liverpool Echo, the local newspaper, had a letter calling for my resignation because I'd brought disgrace upon Nosley. I was nine months into the job. I'll tell you this story because you may find you're, you are sometimes doing things that aren't working. And you may wonder whether you're up to it. I wonder whether I was up to it, but I had a mentor who helped me to see that things were going to get better. I was doing the right things. I just needed more time. So I got everyone together, all the staff together in the room. I said, we're having a tough time at the moment. We're up against it. But in three years' time, people will be coming from all over the country to find out how we've been so successful. Put it in your diaries. It's going to happen. Now, unfortunately, it did happen. And I knew I had to have a plan to make it happen. But at that moment, I had to show optimistic leadership, help them to see that it was going to get better and we could do this. And that's our job in those kinds of situations. So just to wrap up, because I know I'm running out of time. So I've talked about the imperfect leadership mindset. We'll do a couple of the others in the seminar this afternoon. Um, but the good thing is, it's not a set of competencies to be mastered or a body of knowledge to be memorized. It's a mindset to be embraced. Adopting that mindset won't necessarily make your leadership less challenging but it should help to make you feel less lonely and more authentic in what you do. Now, there are those who believe that they're perfect as leaders and they have some success. That's a direct quote. But I believe, I believe, colleagues, that if it's a tough job being a leader, we feel the weight of everyone on our shoulders. If we think we have to be some kind of perfect hero leader, it'll be even harder. So instead, this is what we should do. If we want sustainable, well-led schools, we want long-term and effective education systems, ditch the striving towards perfection, focus on doing the right thing for the students, generally ask for help, and celebrate the fact that we are imperfect leaders. Thank you.
Thank you very much, Steve. Um, I'm Lynn Leslie. I'm the president-elect for the Council for School Leadership. And it's uh, really my privilege to be able to uh, give a thank you on behalf of all of us here at ULEAD 2023 to just say thank you so much for sharing uh, all of the information. I was lucky enough to snap the slide that gave the, the summary of imperfect leadership and that mindset. And I'll definitely be going back and reflecting on it. But for those of you that didn't capture that slide, in about an hour, uh, it'll be available on our SCED, so you can refer to that as well. Um, I guess for me, the the big three takeaways, Steve, um, is really you are so humble. I met Steve at the presenter's uh, uh, orientation uh, yesterday, and he comes in, and he's so quiet and humble. And then to hear of your experiences and your leadership journey uh, and what you had to uh, share with us in your knowledge and experiences is just quite incredible. Um, big takeaway for me was Santorini, the picture of that foggy Santorini, like, oh, right? But I think it really was, I got to see Santorini when it was beautiful, and I did get to see that perfect vision, that perfect image. Um, but I think for, for me, the, uh, the really importance of that foggy vision piece is it's okay. It's okay as leaders. And you kind of gave us permission to, uh, through your experiences and knowledge, that it's okay to feel like we can't see too far ahead, but know that together, asking for help, getting that mentorship and and really challenging us to be humble in that process. So thank you so much. So if everyone could please join me once again. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the You Lead podcast. Make sure you subscribe to never miss an episode. You can also visit our website at atacsl.ca to get more information on the work of the Council for School Leadership.